Peter. Second Peter will be in chapter 2. Second Peter together, chapter 2. Second Peter, chapter 2, as we're continuing our journey through the book of Second Peter. We'll call it our journaling through Second Peter. We find our way to chapter 2. And as we find our way to chapter 2, I want to focus on something that sometimes is helpful and sometimes is not. And that is the flow from one chapter to the next. Obviously, chapters and verses, as we've mentioned every, several times, even in this series of journaling, were not inspired, though they were helpful. I never want to just say, well, Pastor Caleb must not like chapters and verses, that's why he's always pointing this out. That's not true, because as I've mentioned several times, it would be hard for us to just collect our thoughts and me to tell you, open in your scroll somewhere to the middle to the end in Second Timothy. It's nice to have chapter divisions and verses to know where we're all looking at the same page. But at times, and this isn't always the case, at times, the divisions don't help in the flow of thought. And this is certainly the case when we come to the end of chapter 1 going into chapter 2. If you were with us last time, you remember that Peter has been speaking very much about those who have spoken from God. That's the end of chapter 1. There are those who have spoken from God. And he even concluded the end of chapter 1 as we saw it last time together by saying, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of men, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Ghost. And so as Peter was ending that time together, we noted that Peter is talking about those who have spoken from God. That's the emphasis at the end of chapter 1. And you need to keep that in mind because Peter now speaks of another group who were not speaking from God as he comes into chapter 2. It's in contrast to those who have spoken from God in end of chapter 1 that he now lays side by side those who are speaking as though they're from God, but they're not from God. And sometimes we can read chapter 1 as one unit of thought, and then come to chapter 2 and read it as a different unit of thought. But this is all one letter. And in really, Peter is almost by way of comparison showing these are those who spoke as God spoke to them, and now let's speak about those who have spoken and said they are from God, but they are not from God, and how does God feel about them, and how should we look at them, how should we view them, even how should we treat them. And that's what he's saying. Here's what he says beginning in verse 1. But false prophets arose, and again, just like the words therefore in your Bibles, when you see a word like but, you can immediately acknowledge that this is coming back up to something that has preceded it. So he says, but, in contrast to the true prophets that have spoken, false prophets also arose from among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their, follow their sensuality. And because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gluttony, darkness to, kept, to be kept until the judgment. If he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, if by the turning of the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly, and if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived among them from day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to, be, and to keep the unrighteous under punishment unto the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge in the lust of deviling passion and despise authority." That is a long section, and not always do we look at one sections. If you've been in our journaling, sometimes we're just in one verse, sometimes we're in ten verses. But today, I knew no way to subdivide this out to say, all right, we're just going to do this verse, and then we'll stop, and we'll come to the next verse, because this is very clearly one unit of thought. And specifically, Paul, or rather, Peter, is addressing what problem in the church? False prophets. That's exactly right. As Peter is writing this, he is addressing false 
these false teachers that have come into the church, and this or these false prophets, and this is the problem that's the major problem that is being addressed. This is the main thing. Now, where are they coming from? Where are these, all these false teachers that are coming into the church, where are they coming from? Immediately you notice what should be almost a troubling, if not surprising, word among them. Just as there were false teachers coming, they were coming from among them. And friends, it is easier to fight the battles on the outside than it is to fight the battles on the inside. But this is a battle on the inside. And Peter is not alone in writing warnings about false teachers and specifically warnings about false teachers that come from inside the midst. In fact, as you do with just a quick survey of of warnings about false teachers in the New Testament, you will come to no doubt be shocked to find that the warnings are almost exclusively warnings about false teachers coming from within the assembly. I say almost exclusively because there are some that are not just in, in the assembly. But the vast majority of warnings about false teachers talk about those who come from within. Let me give you a few examples and we'll come back to this passage. Acts 20, verse 29, I'll put it on the screen. You can turn with it in your Bibles. It says, Acts is, or Paul is writing... Paul is writing to the first church that he planted. He is now leaving. And as he's leaving, he is going to give some instructions. And here's what he says in verse 29. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And there you see it again. Here's this idea of that's where they're coming from. I know after my departure, these fierce wolves are going to come among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, he says in the next verse, among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert. And this is a theme that we'll see in Second Peter. It's coming in from among you. Come with me to Jude, if you have it, and I'll put it on the screen as well. Jude. In Jude, cha- in Jude chapter 1, there's only one chapter, but in Jude, in Jude 4, it says this. For certain people have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Now, Jude is writing to the church. He's talking about these coming in. I highlight this verse because of some words that they use. And I just wanted to highlight them. We'll come to them again because they'll come up in Second Peter. I want you to notice the word sensuality is used here. This is a problem. We read it in Second Peter. We'll draw on it. I want to see exactly what their problem is, the denial of our Lord and Master. We'll, we see this repeated in Second Peter. So there's obviously a theme here. Stay in your Bibles, but come to Galatians. Galatians chapter 2, verse 4. Again, this time Paul writing once more to the Galatians. And Galatians chapter 2, verse 4, it says, Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ, so that they might bring us into slavery. These are those who, individuals who do not arrive wearing a sign on their forehead that says heretic. Right? That would be very helpful, I guess. Uh, in fact, more than likely, indeed, there is an appeal to these people. If you were to do their new member survey questions and ask them about their salvation and get to know them even prior to them joining the assembly, these would be the kind of people that you would probably say, wow, I can't wait for them to come here because they're gonna, there's, some, there's some kind of leadership quality about them perhaps. There's some kind of drawing personality that they have. These are not nobody sitting in the back. These are, these are the leaders. These are Things And they have been brought in, secretly brought in, they slipped in to spy out our freedom. What freedom is he talking about? What's that? The freedom that we have in Jesus Christ. We were set free from sin. And what are they trying to do? That they might bring us into slavery. They're going to they're gonna, they're gonna create all kinds of twisted things that are going to bring us in. Indeed, their appeal is the fact that there are those who have these leadership qualities and they teach these supposed new things. 
but they are going to, in fact, enslave. Now, coming back to 2 Peter, the passage at hand this evening, as we come together to this passage, there's two things we need to be warned about, two extremes. And they're the same kind of warnings extremes that we deal with even with the topic of demons as we looked at it in Mark. There are two equally bad but opposite extremes that we could fall into when it comes to even false teachers. We could become so preoccupied with the problem of false teachers within our midst that we view every other brother or sister cynically. That could be problematic. Could you see that? Just say, there, there's, there's false teachers in our midst, and it might be the person sitting next to me. Right? <laughs> we could become so preoccupied with it, we, we lose any sense of trust. Now, that's one extreme. What would be the other extreme we could fall into? The opposite. What's that? Just not even paying any mind to it, not thinking that they exist. Now, both of them are extremes. We have to find a fresh balance here. And Peter helps us find that balance by giving to us the strategy of these individuals so that we are not left wondering how they are detected. We have to just kind of figure this out. And he actually gives to us, primarily in this passage, two ways in which they are going to seek to bring people into these paths of of lies and falsehoods. And the first thing that they will do is, number one, they, the false teachers, work undercover. They work undercover. See it with me in the text here as we come to verse 1. They will, it says, these false prophets also rose among people, just as there were false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies. These are those who will work undercover. They are secretly bringing in these destructive heresies. They are not going to move up to the front with them. They are smugglers of falsity. Right? They are secret in this. And as they are secret, these false heresies, Peter makes a point of noting that they are, in fact, not just secretive, but these are destructive heresies. The material that they bring in is going to tear down, it's going to disintegrate, it's going to divide, it's going to destroy. And it says, even denying the master who bought them, and we'll come back to that, that particular phrase here in just a moment, so keep that in mind, this phrase even denying the master who bought them. I want to come back to that and explain that a little bit more further. But it says, bringing upon themselves swift judgment. But here's something else that's secretive about them. Many will follow, and it says many will follow their sensuality. And I already noted with you in that other passage to remember the use of that word, sensuality. In fact, if you're looking at the passage here, and I'll scroll out here in just a second, and you can come over to verse 18 of the same chapter. In chapter 2, come all the way over to chapter 2, verse 18. It says, that it says for speaking loud boasts of folly, they enticed by sensual passions. And you can see Peter using that same word. And uh, uh, I, I thought I had the word on the screen, and I don't. So we'll come back to it. But the word used, translated sensual or, or sensuality, coming back to our text at hand, this, this same word could be translated filthy. could be translated filthy. It, it could be translated elsewhere as lustful. This is the secretive kind of conversation that they have. Those, those conversations, you could say even, that should make one blush, those conversations that are unwholesome and ungodly, lustful, but more than just that, those things that appeal to the senses, those things that appeal to my innate human morality, or we could even better say immorality, those things that are part of my fallen nature that may kind of creep up on me, the temptations, the pride of life, the lust of the eyes, those kinds of things. That's the kind of working that they have. And these are individuals working undercover with the notion of destruction, doing shameful things. That's, that's what they're kind of doing. 
These are those who are first, Peter says, working undercover. But he continues, he says, not only do they work undercover, but he says, number two, they, they really take advantage of people. They take advantage. Take advantage of people. And we see that in verse 3. Come with me to verse 3. It says here in verse 3, as Peter continues his challenge on this, he says, and in their greed they will exploit you with false words. And did you see the the use of that idea, this idea of exploit you? They are able to do so because they are inventive, hence false words. What are are these so-called false words? And and how would we define these false words? Well, uh, the NIV will say, use the false words, uh, translates it as fabricated stories. Fabricated stories is a way you could translate that word. Uh, the, the King James translates it as feigned words. Uh, the, the CSB translated as made up stories. Now why, remember, this is on the heels of chapter 1, Why is he bringing up the fact that they are bringing up fabricated, made-up stories? They're doing it to deceive, but it is in contrast to what else? What's that? Peter has just made a point of talking about his eyewitness account as an apostle. Remember that at the end of chapter 1? Peter is saying he and the apostles have seen this. These are not fake fairy tales. But these guys have made-up stories. And by the way, made-up stories work to gain an, gain an audience, don't they? I, 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 I still chuckle anytime like a politician has some kind of story. They all do this, regardless of which side of the aisle they do, are on. They all do this. Right? They, they make their point and then they have to tell you how they met Joe Schmo. Remember Joe the plumber, was it, with McCain or whatever? And they have, and you got to have all these, you know, some kind of story, and then there's some kind of emotional heartstring. And, and it's really a, a creative way, is it not, to garner attention to yourself. And they all do it, both sides of the aisle. Because if they can garner it up, the, the story, the emotive story, will be more remembered than even the point of their platform. In fact, in some ways, the story becomes their platform at times. This is the kind of way that these kind of guys teach, quite frankly. Now, pause for a second. Well-intended people that I wouldn't even say maybe are false prophets, or at least not intending to be false prophets, can fall prey to teaching in this regard. Story upon story upon story. It's called skyscraper preaching. Story upon story upon story with no point, right? Just all kinds of illustrations. And, and they can be fanciful and they can be interesting, but they are not at all edifying. And then these are even people that I would say aren't false prophets. But false prophets, how are they going to garner to themselves this? These are individuals, these are, as Alistair Begg calls them, are simply full of hot air. That's what they are, right? If that marks their strategy, if their strategy is undercover and taking advantage of people, how successful are they? Well, come with me to verse 2 again. Come with me to verse 2. Paul said, or Peter, I'm going to keep saying Paul, because we were just at the end one. Here's how successful they are. And many, he says, and many will follow their sensuality. When this happens, there will be a lot of people getting on their bandwagon. And the way and the result of many people doing this, and by the way, when he says many, who are the many? They're members in that same church. And the result of the many in that same community doing that 
because of them, Peter says, because this has happened, because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. What is a blasphemy? What is a blasphemy? What's that? A fabrication. A false witness. Nancy? Attributing to God something that he didn't do. So how can the way of truth be blasphemed when we follow false teaching? Think of it this way. You introduce yourself to your neighbor. <laughs> I'm a Christian. I go to such and such a church. And you do something that is an egregious sin that your whole neighborhood sees. I won't even use an example. All right? <laughs> And your whole neighborhood sees that. And they already know you're so-and-so that has the church sticker in the window of your car, let's say. Right? Do you think that your neighbor is going to have any interest at all in Christianity? That's how the way of truth is blasphemed. They can look at it and go, you, you people say one thing, but you don't believe it at all. Now use it even in the smaller things. Hopefully, those outside that are not saved recognize one thing that is chief about believers. We follow the word of God. If there's anything about us that should stand out, it better be that. For us to say one thing, we follow the word of God, and them to clearly observe us doing things that do not follow the word of God, be it simple or large, it can be a blasphemy to the way of truth. Do you see what we're saying? You're saying, on the one hand, I'm a Christian, which means what? A little Christ, right? <laughs> but, and a follower of Jesus. But on the other hand, I'm not doing that. The most dangerous heretics, though, Peter is saying, the most dangerous heretics have many followers, not a few. And with every error, a friend to some lust. And that's what draws people in. Their errors are a friend to some lust, which draws people in. And their impact upon a growing crowd is directly related to their strategy. They weasel their way into your life, they befriend you, and their error is a friend to a lust. And somehow you become addicted. And there are a number of characteristics which define why they are so successful. Peter basically says there are two things that define why they are so successful. Number one, I won't write them down, but you can write these down. Number one, they are flatterers in the way that they teach. That's what he's referring to when he says that they're appealing to a sensuality about you. They are teachers that do scratch those itching ears. That's what they're appealing to. They're appealing to your senses. They are flatterers in the way that they teach. And I haven't yet noticed that, but I'll still notice it now, verse 3. And they have financial ambitions that they suggest that their followers can also enjoy. Look what he says in verse 3. He says, this is what is going after them. This is what, what they're pursuing. That in their greed. That's what's pursuing so they are flatterers in the way that they teach. They're going to appeal to some sensibility about you, whether it be moral or thought. And they have a financial ambition that they may even suggest that their followers will also enjoy if they do what they are doing. Is that not the devil's lies just repackaged over and over? <laughs> The devil has the same lies he's been given since the Garden of Eden. He just is cleverly continuing to disguise them. And people are quite willing to sign up for that. To some a religious experience where belief is confused and where behavior is compromised. I mean, that's a pretty easy sign up to do. It is quite harder to ask people to come together. It's quite harder to draw a crowd when belief is defined. The Bible says so and nobody else can change it, and behavior is demanded. It's a whole lot harder. If you want to draw a big crowd, offer them a religious experience 
where belief is confused or at least diverse and where behavior is not defined by that belief. That'll draw a crowd. I actually don't always use memes to make a point, but I found this one humorous, so I will show it to you. Here's a meme that I found, right? I have religious trauma, and then you take off the mask, it says, they say my sin was bad. (laughs) That's kind of the idea here that Peter is saying. They're not gonna tell you that your sin is bad, and it will draw a crowd. But sin is bad, friend. And the definition of sin we get, whatever that sin is, is from the Bible. So you're welcome. This is my youth pastor coming out and showing you memes together for this evening. I still thought it was funny, so I used it, all right? So their strategy is clear. What is their strategy? Let's review here quickly before we move any further. Their strategy is they work undercover and they take advantage of people, right? And their impact is very obvious. Many people will follow them. But what is their destiny? Look at verse 3. Again, we haven't come to it yet, so we will now. Verse 3, what is their destiny? It says, their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. The CSB puts it, their condemnation was pronounced long ago. For, For a long time... The New King James says, for a long time, their judgment has not been idle. The BSB puts it, the long-standing verdict against them remains in force. What does that mean? They're not changing God. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> the, God has not changed his mind on false prophets. That's what they're saying. Whatever he said at the beginning, that has not changed. And it says, their destruction is not asleep. The King James puts it, their damnation does not slumber. What does that mean? It's coming. It can be easy to look at big crowds following false prophets and think, well, God must not care. And that's why Peter says, it's going to happen. That, that these folks may poo-poo the idea of final rep- retribution, but they are damned men walking. That's what Peter is saying. In fact, there, there's a song about it. I, you don't hear this song very often. In fact, I've only heard it a few times because it's not the most uplifting of songs. <laughs> it's called The Great Judgment Warning. I'll put it on the screen, and I know those series, so let me zoom it in. Have you ever, anybody ever heard this song before? A few. Here's what it says. It's actually quite poetic. It says, and this is taken right from Revelation. I dreamed that the great judgment morning had dawned and the trumpet had blown. I dreamed that the nations had gathered to judgment before the white throne. And then came a bright shining angel who stood on the land and the sea and swore with his hand raised to heaven that time was no longer to be. And here's the refrain. And oh, what a weeping and wailing As the lost were told of their fate, they cried for the rocks and the mountains. They prayed, but their prayer was too late. Not exactly a song you sing all the time. The rich man was there, but his money had melted and vanished away. A pauper stood in the judgment. His debts were too heavy to pay. The great man was there, but his greatness, when death came, was left far behind. The angel that opened the records, no trace of his greatness could find. The widow was there with the orphans. God heard and remembered their cries. No sorrow in heaven forever. God wiped all the tears from their eyes. The gambler was there and the drunkard, and they who had sold them the drink, and those who had granted the license together in hell, they did sink. The moral man came to the judgment. But self-righteous rags would not do. The men who had crucified Jesus had passed off as moral men too. The soul had that put on off salvation. Not yet. I'll get saved by and by. No time now to think of religion. At last they had found no time to die. And the refrain, and oh, what a weeping and wailing. As the lost were told of their fate, they cried for the rocks and the mountains. They prayed, but their prayer was too late. That is quite a stumper, at least for those without Christ. They look at that and they go, wow, that really, someone put that to words? Well, someone did. It actually really makes you think. 
And actually, the, the, the song melody is actually quite, quite beautiful in, in one regard. It really is. But that is exactly what Peter is saying here. And, and to make his point fully, he will give three examples of God's judgment in the Old Testament. And we'll come to those. But before we come to those, I want us to come back to the passage we bracketed off because there's a confusion here. Even denying the master who bought them. What does that mean? There's a little phrase. We bracketed it off. To, now, here's the problem, right? We've got to wrestle through this. How could they bring destruction on themselves if he bought them? How could he have bought them and then they unbought themselves? I thought we believed in the perseverance of the saints. It's kind of a stumper, isn't it? So let's not bytrass it. I'm going to read Wayne Grudem's thoughts, all right? Wayne Grudem suggests that the best way to look at this is in terms of the people of the old in Exodus 2, who God had redeemed his people from the bondage of Egypt. And it could be said they were rightly owned by God, but what was also very clear is that they may, there were those who were bought free from Egypt but did not love God. Therefore, says Grudem, Christ's work of redemption is not in view in this verse. This is not talking about his work of redemption. This is a reference to the Old Testament saint. Contextually, why can we say that Grudem might be right? That this is a reference to the Old Testament saint. Right? <laughs> Not saint, but Old Testament person, specifically the nation of Israel. Always look at context, come up, above it, we're talking about the prophets of old. In a moment, below it, not on the screen, we're going to give three Old Testament examples of judgment. So Gruden's point, and I kind of side with him on this, this is not talking about the work of redemption. Because the work of redemption is very clearly said in other passages of Scripture, you cannot lose your salvation. Peter is not going to contradict other passages of Scripture, even his own self. In context, he's talking about the old. That's a stumper. You can write a PhD about it. But we're going to head it forward, all right? You can read Cruden. But Peter ended the previous chapter, again, affirming the validity of the Old Testament prophets, just to review. No prophecy was ever produced by the will of men, but men of old spake as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. Peter acknowledged that the false prophets had always plagued Egypt, in verse 1. False prophets arose among the people, just as there will be false prophets among you. It's always happened this way. It's going to continue to happen. Men would attempt to make the name for themselves, claiming that God spoke to them when he hadn't. In the old, it's going to happen again. And Peter reveals a similar problem is going to happen, and he takes them now on a journey through three examples of God's judgment. And his construction of this journey is easy to follow. It's the if this happened, then therefore this is going to happen construction. And there are three examples. The first one there, verse four. For if, and again, you can, you can kind of make a highlight of, of every time Peter's going to use this word, if, God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them into the chains of gloomy darkness. I think I said gluttony the first time I read it. To kept until the judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world, and if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction. So there's, there's three Number one example is the fallen, the fallen angels. Here's what he's going to talk about. These fallen angels. Now, what do we know about the fallen angels? Many will use Genesis 6 as an Old Testament passage to, uh, to explain this New Testament verse. Now, before we go any further, this is an obscure New Testament verse. Genesis 6 is an obscure Old Testament passage that talks about the sons of men. Were the sons of men angels? Well, many commentators would suggest that they are. Some would suggest that they are not. 
For those that suggest that they are, the obvious question you have to ask is, why do you think that? And they have to say, it's just a guess. We don't actually, we're not told that the sons of men in Genesis 6 are angels. We, we don't know. We don't know. We are not told. It's an obscure passage. Now here's a helpful Bible study tip for you. What do you do with obscure passages like this one in Genesis 6? See, I'm sitting around in a room, and we're going to do a Bible study together. And you've been in those rooms before. And you get to obscure passages. And the rest of the meeting is hung up on the obscure passage. Have you been there? Have you been there? Have you been there? All right? Is, it, is that the point of this passage for us to study out the obscure with other believers? Is that the point? No. But that's not the point of what Peter is trying to have us do. Does Peter have a clear point that he's making? even if we don't understand all of the ramifications of fallen angels? Is there still a clear point that he's making? What is the clear point that he's making? If he didn't spare angels, he's not sparing you. If he didn't spare angels, he's not sparing you. Even angels are not exempt from judgment, is the point. That's the clear point of this passage. There are angels bound now who are destined for a final judgment. That's the point. Is that clear? So what do I do with the obscure? Well, you can, you, it's not that we just ignore it, right? You could leave it. You can write your PhD paper on it. You can have a great deal of fun with it. You can talk about how many angels dance on the head of a pin, right? But we need to make sure in our Bible study that the clear and the, the relevant is the focus of our study. What is the clear point? The clear point is, even angels are not exempt from judgment. I don't think anybody's missing Peter's point. I bring this up because I think this is a helpful exercise that we can do on a Wednesday night. (laughs) Because I think you and I have been in a room where you get to a verse like this in 2 Peter, and we're talking about fallen angels, and someone has, you know, demonology is really interesting to them. And so they're going to take the whole conversation down that path, and you're going to spend 15, 20 minutes talking about that. Is that good and helpful? And the answer is, no, it is not. It is not good and helpful. Bible studies are great. They are not great when you're sitting around debating the obscure. That is not helpful. That is not edifying. And frankly, our God is not pleased by those kind of Bible studies. God gave us his word for the clear to be clear. Is there any doubt as to what Peter meant by what he just said? No. Do we understand everything about fallen angels? No. Are you okay with that? I hope so. So let's focus on the clear. That's a rabbit trail I got to chase this evening, but I thought it was worth it. All right? What is the other one? Number two, not just fallen angels, but what is the other one? The flood and the ancient world, right? I'll go the flood, because I want to keep it alliterated, even though I don't think number three I can be alliterated. The flood, right? God's judgment in the world with a flood because of what problem? Sin. Sin. It's the same problem. But I want you to notice the clear in this passage what Peter draws out. He says, uh, if, if he did not spare the ancient world... But, and, and this, this but really is drawing something out. He preserved Noah, a, a herald of righteousness with seven others. So what's the, what is the clear here? There's really two clear things, right? One, there's one. You follow God, you will be saved. What's two? You don't, you'll be destroyed. Pretty clear. Pretty clear. You see, folks, I I bring this out because sometimes we get so hung up on Bible studies, like I can't, you you can, there are clear things. Are there obscure things that we need to study? Yes, there are. Are there clear things? Yes, there are, all right? And what's the third? What's the third? Oops, I'm still on the highlighter. What's the third? Sodom and Gomorrah, right? Sodom and Gomorrah. If by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. Boy, 
Have you ever wondered why did God do, so, why did he allow that to happen? Well, making an example of what's going to happen to the ungodly should be your answer. And if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by sensual conduct of the world, and there's, there's again the, the same use of this word, sensual conduct of this world. I want us to, to note, though, in verse 8, when it says that Lot was greatly distressed, other translations will say that Lot was tormented in his soul. Before we move any further, many, many would say, well, Lot just is never the hero. He's always the bad guy. Did Lot make bad choices? There's undeniably Lot made bad choices. But let me ask you something. We live in a pretty wicked environment. Is, is your soul distressed by that? As it should be. And actually the Bible says about this guy that we always view as the loser, <laughs> that he was righteous Lot. It's kind of interesting. That's also something to be learned. If there's ever a guy that made a bunch of bad decisions, even with his family, which in our view, we would say, if the, the worst possible thing you can do is, is hurt your family. And certainly that was true, even Lot's intentions of even sending his own daughters out. What, what horrible things Lot had done. And yet God can turn wicked Lot into righteous Lot. Only God can do that. That's pretty amazing. But I just want to ask us, are we distressed by unrighteous men. Does that, does that actually torment us? Really bother us? It should really bother us. You shouldn't, if you're righteous in God, it should, you shouldn't be comfortable in this world's wickedness. In relationship to the punishment, though, of both of the flood one here, and oh, uh, uh, then the relationship to the punishment of the flood one and Sodom, I want you to notice that there, that judgment the people are experiencing judgment, but there's a, there's a if you can use an illustration, there's a release valve, if you will. There's a, a safety line. There's a life vest. It's right there. Noah grabbed it. So did seven other people. Lot grabbed it. This is the point. For as that righteous man lived among them day after day, here he goes, it says, he was tormenting his soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. It's almost a, it is literally a parenthesis. There is a point that even the writers of, the, of this epistle is going to be willing to chase a rabbit here and there. <laughs> you ever wonder, is it okay for preachers to chase rabbits? Well, apparently Peter did. <laughs> here he is chasing one in the parentheses. So verse 9, I want you to notice, to keep, that then the Lord knows, this is the point of all of these stories, and the Lord knows how to rescue, oops, sorry, uh, the point of all these stories that we've just read Peter is saying, and the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and keep the righteous under, unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. To keep unrighteousness under punishment. What does that mean? What's that? They will not escape it. They will not escape it. God is the righteous judge. You, they cannot get out of this, even to allude back to the song. So what's the broad sweep of this passage? Here's the broad sweep. Number one, the reality and inevitability of judgment. It is real and it will happen. Number two, the unequivocal pronouncement of unrighteousness. God is the one, if you will, with his hand on the scales. And he determines what is righteous and what is unrighteous. The unequivocal pronouncement of unrighteousness. And number three, the keeping power of God cannot be lost in this passage. And it is seen even more clearly in the verses we'll look at next week, but we'll highlight it here. Look at verse 13. Suffering wrong as the wage for, for a wrongdoing, they counted a pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are blots and blemishes reveling in their deceptions while they feast with you. This is who these people are. They have, verse 14, 
eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. They entice unsteady souls. They have hearts trained in greed, accursed children, forsaking the right way. They have gone astray. They have followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved gain from wrongdoing, but was rebuked for his own transgressions. A speechless donkey spoke with a human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. The keeping power of God. If the prophets won't speak, God will use a donkey to do his bidding. God is that kind of powerful. He always wins. That's the keeping power of God. And for that, I want us to see the the closing verse of a mighty fortress. Here's the closing verse. This is Martin Luther's great anthem in the Reformation. Beautiful text to a beautiful song. And though this world, and and remember, Luther was fighting for his life in some places. He was unwilling to recant of his beliefs before the Diet of Worms. And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us. Well, he, he faced, you just read the stories of Luther, I'm sure you know them. We will not fear. For God has willed his truth to triumph through us. I can't help but think of Paul's words. He which begun a good work in you will perform it. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. We might look and say there are a lot of people following him. He has a big army and he has a lot of false prophets doing his bidding. We're not afraid of the devil. His rage we can endure For lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. Just one little word. This is the truth. I I can't help but wonder if, just maybe a little, Luther was thinking even of this passage and thinking, I know of some false prophets, the the Pope by name and his cardinals. Maybe he was thinking of those, I don't know and especially those that indulge in the lust of defiled passions, and this is perhaps why I think maybe Luther was thinking of those, and despise authority. My, how they wanted that authority for themselves. And if it's not power for the people, and greed, and sensuality, it is this kind of grabbing on, and I get my way that will sway people towards false truths, which is to say, not truth at all. Questions, comments? Yes, Rebecca. Um, that part of your verse one, um, denying the master who bought them. Yes. Doesn't it also mean that they weren't really saved in the first place? That could be, and that, that is one of the interpretations she said. Could it also mean they weren't saved in the first place? That is one of the, one of the encampments that you'll read commentaries have. Sometimes you, you look at commentaries like verses like this one, and you, you almost have equal camps. This one has, uh, there's, there's quite a smattering of beliefs. I, I like, that's why I gave you Wayne Grudem's. I like Wayne Grudem's because it fits in my mind a little bit better with the context, but I don't, I'm not saying that I'm so strongly set in my ways that I don't think that's a bad interpretation either. Exactly, and, and even those who have that position would say, would quote other passages like, they went out from us because they were not of us, and those kind of passages to indicate, yeah, they, they just weren't even saved to begin with. So, again... We can have those conversations. I like to have them on Wednesday nights to say there are things in the Bible that are a little bit harder to understand. Yeah, a little bit. <laughs> Any other comments, questions? In the back, yes. For the pastor, uh, Second Peter chapter 3. Second Peter chapter 3. Verse uh, 17. Verse 17. Uh, the King James Version. It says, He therefore, beloved, seeing that you knew these things, beware that he also be led away with the errors of the wicked and fall from your oath. Absolutely. I believe he was talking to, about a false teacher. Yes. And then, since he, you know, he teach you the word, so he's telling you, beware, because these false teachers are going to creep in. Yeah. And they will lead you away to destruction. Absolutely. And, and remember, in light of the series that we've been going through, this is, this is, if you will, Peter's last will and testament. Peter, at the beginning in chapter 1, says, 
I believe I'm about to die. And so I'm going to remind you of things that you already know. And then he begins to outline that. And then this is what he repeats here in verse 17. Knowing this beforehand, and he's pretty adamant. It's pretty evident, by the way, that Peter and Paul and the other apostles were convinced that one of the biggest dangers facing the church was these false teachers that would come in. They just keep coming it up. Justin? I think we're going to lay down the, the importance of the encouragement that the last part of this chapter is for those who are. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, the Lord did preserve Noah, mm-hmm. the righteous, and how that he will preserve a remnant of people who try. Mm-hmm. And who are like, Yeah, these are going to preserve them, they're going to preserve us. Yeah, he didn't he didn't say there were many false prophets, people following the false prophets, but look at this huge group of people that were doing the right thing. He said there were many false prophets, but God preser- destroyed the whole world and saved just righteous Noah. <laughs> or God pre- destroyed all of Sodom and Gomorrah and saved just Lot. And Jewishly, they would know that, and this is not you know, the Jewish crowd, but he preserved the remnant of the Jewish nation. Sure. He, yeah. So that, that line of small preservation, I think, is yeah. Yeah. carried throughout the whole New Testament. Yep. God is not as enamored with numbers as we are. <laughs> God cares about souls, individual souls. And I, I, just to hearken, because we've been in the Gospel of Mark in the mornings, cross the whole Sea of Galilee in a storm to save one person. God, God is interested in the individual. God knows you by name, friend. Paul? Obscure passages are yeah. not a place <laughs> Very good point. That's true. Obscure passages, to repeat what Paul just said, obscure passages are not a good place to develop doctrine. That is very true. And so many people have gotten so caught up in their obscure passages, they decide that they're the best to lead a Bible study. And frankly, they're the last person that should be leading a Bible study. Yes. Any others? These are great. Well, Hope Second Peter, at least these verses, has come alive to you fresh this evening. You can be reading ahead. We'll be in the next portion of the book uh, this next week together. Let's close with a word of prayer as we depart. Lord, we thank you so much for the word that we can study. Lord, may we be good students of it. Lord, there are so many warnings in your word of, of these false teachers that can come in and, and deceive so many. And Lord, we pray, first of all, for ourselves individually that we would not be so naive as to think that we would not fall prey to believing these false teachings. And Lord, as we pray for ourselves, we also pray for the brothers and sisters that are walking this journey with us. May we be encouraging to one another to uh, watch out for one another, to, to protect one another from these false teachers as we protect ourselves through the Holy Spirit's leading. Lord, we're thankful that we have, however, your word as our guidebook, manual, our light unto our feet, our guide for our path. May we just continue to come back to it. We pray this in your name. Amen. Thank you. You are dismissed this evening.